In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we are revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. There are not many people around anymore with intimate knowledge of the inner workings of the American Civil Rights Movement. Juanita Abernathy, the wife of Ralph David Abernathy, King's confidant, is one of them. I stated in a previous episode that as we honor Dr. King on this 50th anniversary of his assassination, the AJC reached into its archives to bring you stories from the people who knew him well and their unique witness to a tragic moment in American history. In this interview, conducted in 2008, Ms. Abernathy talks in detail about the unbreakable bond her husband and Dr. King held. She gives a compelling perspective of what it was like to be the wife of a civil rights leader. Constant death threats by telephone, house bombings in the middle of the night, and the relentless fear she would one day get the phone call that her husband was killed on the trail for justice. The couple often hung out with another young preacher and his wife, Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King. It was at the Abernathy's kitchen table, often following a meal prepared by Juanita Abernathy, that the early strategies of the civil rights movement, specifically the Montgomery bus boycott, were hatched. It was the Abernathy's living room where Dr. King would practice some of his most famous sermons, including his drum major instinct sermon, delivered just months before his death. AJC reporter Ernie Suggs. Uh, well, you know, Juanita Abernathy's one of the, you know, survivors, you know, kind of like that big four couple 
or the big two couple with the Abernathys and the Kings that were, you know, kind of grew up in Montgomery. She's the only one left. So she has a lot of stories to tell. Um, her husband, of course, Dr. Ralph Edward Abernathy was Dr. King's right hand man. So she was able to kind of give us a kind of inside glimpse into their uh, their human personality, their 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 relationship as brothers, quote unquote. Um, so she you know, she's able to talk to her, talk to us about the dangers in the movement and how that affected or how that can affect your family. And how, you know, it's not, you know, you see Martin Luther King and Abernethy on TV and marching, but, you know, they had to come home to their families. And, you know, there's all these stories about how Juanita Abernathy was an amazing cook and how Dr. King used to like to go to her house and eat, and you know, because she made amazing, you know, soul food. So, you know, she's able to kind of tell us these kinds of stories. And, you know, she's she's still kind of like this living treasure that's still here in Atlanta. I'm Juanita Jones Abernathy, and um, in 1968, uh, leading up to the Memphis trip, um, I was home with my three children, going to PTA, doing the things that mothers do, and um, being a mother and a father most of the time because my husband was gone most of the time. He was home primarily on the weekend, and. Um, I was doing the PTA, chauffeuring, going to ballet, going to softball and no, Little League and all of those things that mothers do. Just being a mother and um, we didn't have any direct action at that time in Atlanta. So that was really, in fact Atlanta never had a movement. We don't talk about it very much, but we claim everything because it emanated from the, the um, movement over on Auburn Avenue, which was SCLC. But in actuality, other than the student movement, Atlanta never had a movement. So there was no real reason to do a lot of, of uh, participating except in Operation Breadbasket, which um, came out of Atlanta after Leon Sullivan came down here and taught us how to do it. And I don't know whether you realize it or not, but that's actually how we got into Breadbasket. Because he came here, we met at um, Allen Temple Church, Reverend Middleton, who at that time was pastor of Allen Temple, he was later President Morris Brown, um, was um, the host minister. And Leon came and told us exactly how to start what they call selected buying. And he gave it the name Breadbasket. And that's how we got the Atlanta community really involved. We integrated the Atlanta Journal Constitution, Coca-Cola, um, Macy's, it was Davidson's at that time, Rich's, how we opened up the city of Atlanta. But it was it was Breadbasket that did that. But I'm, I'm not gonna keep on you were there from the beginning in Montgomery. Yeah. You and your husband were there from the beginning in Montgomery. Yes. What was that like, and did you ever foresee the events that led, that led up to 1968, how much progress you all had made and how you would be at the forefront of all that? Well, what happened in Montgomery, um, we knew would change the world. There was no doubt about it because that was the first time actually that a group of Negroes, which we were at that time, you're African Americans now, but had ever stuck together to accomplish a goal. 
And because of that, we gave impetus to movements around the world. Because that's how South Africa knew that they could have a movement against apartheid. Because of what happened in Montgomery. It was like a pebble dropped in the ocean that made ripples around the world. The aboriginals in, in uh, um, uh, uh, Argentina, not Argentina, um, um, Australia. Australia, what am I thinking about? Felt that they had some voice. And um, South Africans, against the horrible injustices they were experiencing, which were all similar to what we had, they felt from what we did in Montgomery for 381 days that they had hope of changing their systems. And that's why Montgomery was so important. And we knew that it would spread because of those two situations especially. When you, um, when you think about what your husband did and mm -hmm. your, husband's your husband's involvement, because your husband was in Montgomery before, Doctor. You and your, your husband, yes. were, they were, you were over there first. What were your first impressions of Martin Luther King and Mrs. King? Well, when I met, my, my, my husband had met him mm -hmm. previously at, um, Ralph was at, at, at Atlanta University and Martin was at Morehouse. So they had met prior to that day that he came to Montgomery to preach his initial sermon. And Vernon Johns, who was his predecessor at Dexter, caught a ride with him to our house because he was our guest speaker for that Sunday. And Dr. King dropped him off at our home, and I had cooked dinner, and Dr. Johns tried to prevail with him to stay and eat dinner because the meal he would get at my house was going to be better than the one he would receive from his hostess. But he, of course, he didn't stay, but I met him, and I just thought he was a regular person. He was very nice and warm, and we had a good conversation. But, of course, he had to hurry on to his hostess and host for the weekend because then we didn't have hotels. We had to live in homes and later after he was called to Dexter, then he brought Coretta. And um, we were young couples and Martin and Ralph were the two youngest pastors in Montgomery. So naturally we were thrown together. We went from home to home. We, were, we exchanged meals on the weekend at each other's homes, and um, that's how we became close. This was prior to the bus boycott. So when the boycott started, the friendship had already begun. How did your husband, because I know in the, in the and I want to get to the speech later, but mm -hmm. on the mountaintop, when Dr. King talks about Ralph is my best friend. Mm -hmm. How did, in your opinion, did that friendship develop over, I guess, from the time they met through the boycott through 1968? How did that friendship become so tight? And why well, did Ralph, I mean, I'm sorry, why did your husband decide to go along with this movement? Well, actually, Ralph had led a movement on the campus of Alabama State as a student. He had a boy, they, he was counsel student council president, and they boycotted the dining hall and had one of the employees fired and got better food, demanded better food, and they received it. So 
he had a had already succeeded in a boycott. So the idea of a boycott was not the first time he had experienced it. And when Rosa Parks decided not to give up her seat, after she was the third person, not the first, then Raff was um, working with the NAACP. E.D. Nixon was president, Rosa was secretary, and they had just closed what was, which was a membership a drive, you know, as, um, and say SCLC, um, the NAACP always had membership drives every year, and Raph chaired the membership drive. So he knew Rosa, and Rosa went to church right across the street from our house. So when Rosa decided that she was not going to give up her seat, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And it just mushroomed from that, because she was known in the community and was established as a quiet, nice, concerned human being that everybody liked and respected. So Martin told Raph, okay, you be president, I'll work with you. Raph said, no, you take it. Reverend Mr. Um, Rufus Lewis suggested his pastor, who was new. And Martin said, no, I don't want it because I'm doing my recommendations for my new church and I will not have time and I'm doing my dissertations. And I won't have the time to do it. And Raph said, if you take it, I'll work with you. And um, Martin said, if you take it, I'll work with you. Raph said, no, you take it, and I'll work with you. And that's how it started. And he did just that. From the time he accepted the presidency of the, in, of the Montgomery Improvement Association until he died, that relationship remained. As a, uh, a young couple, as a young couple, and a young family with young mm -hmm. kids. How was it for you when your husband was going out of town and getting death threats? Mm -hmm. um, and this is why I want to lead to Montgomery, uh, to Memphis. Just talk about the process that you had to deal with, just fears oh, that you had to go through. The, oh, it was horrible. They had the White Citizens Council. We had two organizations, the Q Club Klan and the White Citizens Council. Well, the White Citizens Council hired a woman to come on duty at 7 o'clock in the morning, and she cussed, cursed, or whatever you want to call it. Horrible things. I'd never heard anything like it in my life. From 7 a.m. in the morning until 7 p.m. in the evening. Then a man came on duty, and he continued throughout the night. Well, these death threats came for years, until 1950 seven when they finally bombed our house. Well, I knew that eventually they were going to make good on the threats. You know, they threatened to kill you and your little children. Didn't know I only had one. But you better get back in the back of the house, you and your little SOBs, because we're going to blow you asunder. And all these things occurred constantly. And they had a list of people, she said, who she would call every day, all day. Finally, Ted Poston from the New York Post came one day, and he said, well, you shouldn't have to live with this. This is against the federal statutes. This is illegal. I said, well, Ted, you call and see. He said, I'm calling the FBI. I said, okay. You call them, I've already called them, and they say no federal statutes are violated, so they can do nothing about it, plus they can't trace a call. I said, now, if somebody was getting ready to kill somebody, 
if I were getting ready to kill somebody, they could trace my call. He called FBI, called the Montgomery Advertiser, and um, of course they said they couldn't do anything, they had no proof on it, and blah, blah. He said, well, I've witnessed it. I'm a reporter from the New York Post. The next morning, the lady called me. She said, you are smart, SOB. You called the FBI on me. And what you don't, and you call the telephone company. And you call the Montgomery Advertiser. What you don't, don't understand is I work for the telephone company. <laughs> so I often wondered how could she, we had rotary dials then. I said, how can this woman redial so quickly? She must be at a switchboard. I said, because it's impossible. As fast as she would call and cuss me out, I'd put the receiver down. She'd ring me again, do the same thing. She'd ring right back. And I knew she didn't have time enough to dial six numbers. And she was doing the same thing intermittently with the other folk that she was calling. But that went on until the day they were going to Atlanta, Martin and Ralph to organize SCLC. And that morning, about 9.30, the phone rang. I answered, and they let off a blast in my ear that nearly burst my eardrum. And tears started coming down, and Martin and Raph were about to go to the airport, and they were sitting in the living room. They said, what happened? I said, well, they didn't say anything. What did they do? I said, they just let off a blast. Somehow I knew that they were serious. That's the first time that had occurred. So they said, come on, let's go to, you go to Atlanta with us. I said, no, I'm not going. I am going to stay here. Around said, well, you need to go. I said, I'm not going. We have a baby and there's no need of, he said, well, I'll stay here. I said, no, 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 you go on, no need of both of us getting killed. We have a baby. And uh, I was expecting. So I wouldn't go. Coretta had, had gone, was going, and I, I said, no, I'm not going. And sure enough, about, I, I went to sleep watching Jack Parr. And uh, I'd asked the housekeeper to stay with me that night. And she said, no, I'll stay with you tomorrow night. I'm going out tonight. So I slept on my sofa in the living room until two o'clock. I awakened at two, got in my bed. At 2.10, the bombs went off. And it was January 10th. I looked out, there was no front. And the wind was cushing in. And it was darker than a thousand midnights. And nobody was around except the police came immediately and roped off my house and said nobody could come. By that time, the neighbors had begun to walk up the street, and he tried to stop everybody from coming in. And as the people gathered, one of my neighbors heard a woman, a reporter, ask a police, where next? And he said, go to Ripley. Our church was on the corner of Ripley and Columbus Streets. And 15 minutes after they bombed our house, 
they bombed our church. And I had to live, we had to live away from home for six months until they repaired the house because we couldn't live there. But the bricks fell from the chimney, the transom, it was an old house up over the door, the, you know, the old homes had the glass transoms over the door. That fell to the outside. Not a piece of plaster fell in my bedroom. Mm. Nothing fell in my bedroom. I mean nothing. And the whole house was torn up. And my baby did not awaken. So the next morning when the gas man came, the gas inspector to check on the gas before we could, you know, turn it back on, he called me and asked me to come out. He wanted to show me something. I said, okay. He said, you need to thank God the rest of your life. I said, I don't know what you're talking about, but I do. He said, well, I want to show you your main gas line. Had the dynamite been placed an inch farther, you would have gone up in flame. And I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but I do know one thing. God takes care of us, and he takes care of his own. And that's why I have no fear. And that's why I never had any fear, even though we knew that there was a possibility. Because remember, during that time, we had lived through lynchings where men were hung from trees and black women were beaten to death. So the reality of it was real for us, especially in the South. So I knew that eventually they probably would make good on their threats but didn't know when. So when your husband and, and Dr. King and everyone went to Memphis, there was a lot of stuff going on. So that was, from what I've read, that, that whole trip was just, there was a lot of bad stuff going on. Yeah. And the rioting. What were your thoughts, you know, did you ever, you know, when he called, I don't know if he called every day, did you ever say, you know, you need to come home or whatever. But talk about just the, the rioting and the stuff that was going on in Memphis even before the shooting. But you see, um, they had not, Well, the, the, our oppressors, I say, planted some people to create a scene that looked like Dr. King was leading a violent march so that that would discredit his leadership and say, oh, he's not that nonviolent. See how he had all those folk in Memphis rioting? And he was very concerned about his image. So when they marched in Memphis, and they had this um, group of people, uh, obviously, who were invaders and not people that were connected with the garbage workers, but these were just sort of rabble-rousers that they, they weren't black, all right, but they had put them into the situation to create violence and to be rowdy because all our demonstrations were always um, quiet and nonviolent because they were people were taught how to act and what to do and what not to do. So they knew that these were not people really connected with the garbage workers, but they had been put there to make it look bad because naturally the city did not want to do what they needed to do toward the garbage workers. And Dr. King was very distraught and disturbed by the violence that broke out during and leading that march. And they had they were throwing bricks and 
he and Ralph were dodging bricks and they had they broke up the march. Well, when they came back to Atlanta, they were, Dr. King was, I have never seen him as disturbed as he was after that march in Memphis. Because even with the march and marches in Mississippi and Chicago, now Chicago is where I thought we were gonna die. But um, he did not have the same kind of spirit in any of those situations. I had not seen it like I saw on his countenance following that march in Memphis. And um, they had to go back because you can't give in to your enemy, you know, defeating you. That was not what we, what we did. If we were told not to march, we had to march because you have a right to protest. So he came home that, I believe it's on the Thursday or Friday, but Friday he called me and we were going out, the four of us, to eat dinner. And he called me and asked me, he said, I don't want to go out, I want to come to your house. I said, okay. He said, and I want some fish. If I get the fish, Will you cook it? Corey will help you. I said, okay. He got the fish and um, came over and we cooked fish. And you know how the news flashes all during the evening, especially about something. Oh, the march in Memphis turned violent and blah, blah, blah. And they just kept rehashing that because the media is like that, you know, they like to talk about something that's not pleasant when it looks like a blight on somebody's leadership. So Dr. King was not the Dr. King then that everybody was praising. So they were glad to say something that disparagingly about his, um, disparagingly about his leadership. So the march was not nonviolent. And here's this man who's always talking about how nonviolent he is. And all these marches and all these protests we've had have been nonviolent. And here is his Waterloo. And they were happy. So every time we turned around, the news was flashing. And he looked like he had lost his best friend. That's how solemn he was. And we tried to make small talk and everything so that he would not be so depressed by the news, but he just couldn't get over that, but was determined to go back. And of course, naturally, you, you say you gotta go back because otherwise you're being, you're being defeated, and we were not a defeatist kind of people. The movement was not like that. So we spent the night Everybody, Bernard Lee, Martin, Coretta, and I, we all sat there and fell asleep. And um, Martin teased us because we had two love seats. <laughs> and he said we couldn't afford a whole sofa. So we had, he was a great teaser. He said we had two, we had two love seats, which was two pieces of sofas. And he sat on one and Ralph sat on the other. And they slept. Coretta stretched out on the sofa in the living room and slept. Bernard Lee sat up in a chair, and I sat up in the chair. And we talked and slept all night. 
And they went back to Memphis. But I'm almost sure now that Martin had an intuition that something was going to happen because of all the demonstrations that I had seen his reaction to. I had never seen one like that. So on, in hindsight, I really feel like he probably felt something. Because when you live close to God, I believe you, you get a feeling. You, you somehow know. And I think he sort of knew. He knew that something was going to happen. may not have been that he was going to die, but I think he knew something. But the interesting thing is, in January of that year, Coretta had surgery, and she was at Georgia Baptist Hospital. And after service that Sunday, I, was, I, I went by, I went to see her after church, and Martin came in. And he was re-preaching his sermon. And I said, nobody wants to hear this. What are you talking about? And he said, Corey, I preached today a sermon. And he went on to talk about the drum major sermon. When, when, I'm, when I die, I don't want a long funeral. Don't talk about the degrees I have. But say I'm, I was a drum major for justice. And I said, man, we don't want to hear that. And I tried to shut him up. I said, Coretta is here sick, and you coming in here with this gruesome stuff. We don't want to hear this. How dare you? He said, Corey, I have a tape for you. You just should have been there. And he kept preaching, rehashing the sermon. And that was the sermon that everybody talks about. But this was January, and he was assassinated in April. So this all blends in with the fact that he had a premonition. Well, on that day when you all slept in your living room, was that mm -hmm. the last time you saw him alive? Uh-huh, the last time. So what were you doing? And that was the last Friday night he lived. Okay, last Friday. What, do you remember what you were doing uh, April 4th when you found out, before you found out, and what you were doing, how you found out? Well, Coretta called me and told me, um, I got a call, Juanita. Martin has been shot. When we come back, Juanita Abernathy talks about the toll of Dr. King's death and the challenges of keeping the movement going. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
Welcome back to the Voices of King, a podcast presented by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's hard to fathom what couples like the Kings and the Abernathys experienced during the tumultuous times of the civil rights movement. Or what it was like to lose not just a leader in Dr. King, but a dear and close friend, Ernie Suggs. You know, you got to think about um, just how young they were. I mean, Martin Luther King died in 1968 at the age of 39 years old. I mean, that's amazing to think about what he did at 39. So when they were in Montgomery in those early days, they were in their 20s, early 20s. You know, you just remember when we had just gotten out of college, what we were doing in our early 20s. (laughs) So, yeah, she was a great interview. Do you remember what you were doing uh, April 4th when you found out, before you found out, and what you were doing, how you found out? Well, Coretta called me and told me. Um, I got a call, Juanita. Martin has been shot. Will you go to Memphis with me? I said, okay, give me about 30 minutes. Because I always kept my bag just about packed. I grabbed my bag, I called a friend of mine, Gwen Smith, Dr. Oda Smith's wife, and um, she came, drove me to the airport. And as we were circling, I said, I told Corella, I said, I'll meet you at the airport. And by the time we circled around to go into the airport, we heard on the radio that he had passed. So I went on into the airport and saw Coretta, and they were surrounding her, you know, and expressing sympathy. So I said, okay, I'll meet you at home. So I went on back to her house. But we were en route to Memphis when the news came. Now, these are days, obviously, before cell phones and all that. Oh, no, you know, that's right. So when you were going to the airport and you um, found out that he was dead, mm-hmm. had you heard from your husband yet, or did you? No, no, I hadn't what heard from Ralph. I hadn't heard, hadn't heard a word from Ralph. So what were you thinking about him? Well, I knew he was disturbed. Uh-huh. I knew that. But um, knowing Ralph... Rafferson was an unusually strong man. Very strong and resilient. If he was mourning, you would know it. Because he had composure. He was not one that would break down and and fall apart. That was not his nature. So I knew that if whatever happened, he was there. And um all I was thinking about, and my little children were screaming and, and carrying on in the car, all I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. And don't let him be a vegetable. But uh, I just, I just knew that Ralph was there. And whatever he could do to defend him or to help him, he was there doing it. I know your husband, uh, you know, as you said, he pretty much right after he was with him when he died, mm-hmm. he was pretty much, I think he stayed in Memphis a couple of days and identified the body. Yeah, he, basically he went, to the, went into the operating room, mm-hmm. he and Bernard Lee. Mm-hmm. They, ran, they, they rode in the ambulance. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was mm-hmm. going to ask you if you didn't mind telling us exactly what your husband told you that happened in that situation during the assassination. Like, you know, if you don't mind, it didn't go into... 
the, um, the oh the um they yeah. were getting ready to go to dinner yeah they were getting ready to go to dinner at Billy Kyle's house and Ralph and Martin wore Aramis cologne <laughs> they were known by that Aramis and um, Ralph had left his Aramis and um, Martin had gotten dressed and Ralph said Martin do you have any Aramis he said yeah and he told him where it was. Ralph stepped back in the room to put on, after shaving, his uh, cologne and heard what he thought sounded like a firecracker. Martin was standing on the balcony and they were about to leave. Down in the courtyard was Jesse, Billy Kyle, um, um, Oh, the fellow who played the trumpet, played the saxophone, and a bunch of people. They were orange going to... Orange down there? Huh? Was Orange down there? Reverend Orange? I don't remember Orange. He may have been down there, but uh, they were all getting ready. Ralph and Martin was going to Billy Kyle's house for dinner. And um, they were about to leave. They were standing on the balcony, Martin, and Ralph had been standing there, but he went back to get the cologne. That's when he heard what he said sounded like a firecracker. And he looked up and Martin saw the, 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 his foot. And um, he ran and grabbed him. And the bullet had just, I don't want to describe it, but anyway, he picked up his head and everybody, had run upstairs then, screaming and hollering. Raph said, call the ambulance. There's no time to break down. Call the ambulance. And they got the ambulance. And he and Bernard decided they were not going to leave him when the paramedics came. They rode with him and saw everything that they did. And when he got to the hospital, they said, well, whatever you do to him, we are going to see it. And Raph kept holding his head, Martin is Raph. It's going to be all right, it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. And um, they wouldn't leave the operating room until they pronounced him dead. And um, Ralph identified the body and brought the body back to Atlanta. How, no, sorry, go on. How did it, um, how did this impact your, you, you talked about how strong he was, but how did it yeah. impact him long-term and short-term? You know, it, it was amazing. I thought he was operating in shock. Raph went through the funeral, through helping to get everything straight, working with the program and everything. And we never saw him break down. Delivered a part of a, of a, of a he delivered his speech, and Dr. Dr. Mays um, spoke. He he went through the whole funeral as though he was working on his mother's funeral. It was the same way when he I understand from his relatives that that's the way he responded when his mother died. He delivered the eulogy and didn't break down. That's the way he is. That's the way he was. I keep saying the present tense. But um, after a while, see, we were leading up to Resurrection City. 
when Ralph had to take over, because Martin had wanted him to take over. I did not. Because I knew it would be an impossible situation. Anybody, I don't care who it was, I don't care who it would have been or could have been or should have been, it was an impossible situation to succeed a Martin Luther King. And Ralph did not have a Ralph. And I knew that. And not having a Ralph, he would have nobody to have his back that he could bounce everything off on, that he could plan and strategize with. And that was why I didn't want him to take the leadership role. Even when Martin said so, he set it up so that Ralph could succeed him. And I said, no, 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 because Ralph will not have the support, will not have a Ralph like you have had a Ralph. Martin, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And he said, but Ralph can handle it. Ralph can handle it, and he will. But you know how the media is. They start comparing. Yeah. Oh, it's, now Martin was not the great I am when he was alive. But any time a person dies, then, oh, all of America started recognizing how great he was. Even though he had won the Nobel Peace Prize, a lot of people still had not accepted the fact that this man was a revolutionary leader. So all of this mushroomed after the assassination. And people began to really understand and appreciate what this man was, what he stood for, and what he had done. There was no denying. but. Um, and then his successor would naturally be an impossible situation. And they started making comparisons. Well, you know, you got to feel Martin Luther King's shoes. And Raph developed the slogan, no, I don't feel his shoes. I have my own sandals. And, uh, but it still didn't, you know. He, he w went through Resurrection City. And Resurrection City, the media would not even let that be a success, even though it flooded all that summer. The, the success of Resurrection City has never really been acclaimed, and it was successful. So. Very interesting. Do, do you remember the day of the funeral? Well, I'm sure you do, but talk about yeah. just how Atlanta was that day. And oh, Atlanta was somber. It was sad, and people from all over <clears throat> Excuse me. All over the United States came to Atlanta in appreciation. Now, for me, that was a glorious day to see them appreciate what he had stood for. But they came to Washington in '63. But they came for a different reason. We were established in the right to march. But this was in appreciation for what he had done. And I'm just sorry he was not here to see it. <clears throat> because when he did, he knew what his funeral was like. <laughs> I, I, just feel, I just feel like there are times that, you know, the dead will 
I don't know whether theologically it's sound or not, but I think they know. But that showed appreciation for what had occurred in, in the United States because, but I still don't really think that a lot of people know why Martin Luther King was killed. Because I still hear people saying, oh, he was killed because of his position on the Vietnam War. That's not true. Why was it? We were bringing together poor whites, Native Americans, blacks, rich and poor, and Hispanics. The most powerful force in America were coming together to face this government and say, you've got to treat us right. All of these people were invisible. And here you are bringing them together? This economy couldn't stand it. So anybody who really looked at the situation, you have to know that's why they killed him. James Earl Ray didn't kill Martin Luther King. You mean alone or at all? I don't think alone. <laughs> this was a powerful force coming together against the United States government. And it was all about economics. It was our economy that was being threatened by poor whites. Now you look at it, poor whites, Native Americans, Blacks and Hispanics all coming together to say to this country, we are no longer going to be invisible and you are no longer not going to treat us fairly. We are a force to be reckoned with. So what do you do? You get rid of the leader and you send everybody else on tangents. And by the time that force that we had going in America come back together, then the United States would have done whatever they wanted to do because it'll take 50 or 100 years to get back together. And they would break the backbone, and they broke the backbone of the most powerful movement this country has ever had. That's why he was killed. So when you think, when you think about visiting Mrs. King in the hospital in January mm -hmm. and Dr. King talking about that sermon. What were you thinking about when you heard the sermon at his funeral? I just knew then he had to know something. I said Martin had an intuition. Mm -hmm. To be very honest, if they had said they were going to kill him, he told my husband. But he never admitted it to anybody and he wouldn't so I was asked over and over and over and over and over did Ralph ever did Martin tell Ralph did Ralph ever tell you I said well if he told him that anybody had threatened to kill him he wouldn't even tell me and he wouldn't have told me Ralph wouldn't have told me but he had an inkling of some sort. 
what it was, I do not know. Because that sermon, three months prior to the assassination, and the day before the assassination, if you remember, they stood on the balcony in that same position because it was just outside of the room. And when you look at all those things, you began to think, you know, what was going on? But Martin was not about to stop because of what somebody probably, a threat that they would have made. He, he wasn't going to stop. And I believe if they had told him anything, he would have told Raph, but Raph would not have admitted it. But that's why he was king. And um, it was, it was planned. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear from Reverend Joseph Lowry, an Atlanta spiritual treasure. Lowry shares his perspective of Dr. King's impact years after his death and the need to continue the pursuit of his dream. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to senior editor of visuals Sandra Brown senior managing editor Mark Wallagor, and our editor-in-chief, Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal Constitution presents Hip Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny one film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL.